Wednesday nights. Let me level with you. We have a big match this week, and there's been a lot on my mind. But for some reason, my co-hosts won't just let me tell you about it. For some reason, they want me to sing about it. So apologies in advance. Like the legend of the Wednesday It always ends in moaning And keeps the cup all groaning Relegation needs postponing We such a bore The top six Seems so far So fix The back four And sell off A big star Yes, up all night Just get one I'm up all night For good fun Yas up all night, make them run I'm up all night to get Luke We're up all night, just get one We're up all night to get some We're up all night, make them run We're up all night to get Luke 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 Got a great show for you tonight Big guest, Steve Cook. Full complement of co-hosts, Patty Jones, Paul Owen, James Allen, Evan Skelter. Let's start the show. Please hold all applause until the end of the show. It is Owls AmeriCast, episode 14. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. A very, very busy show. Very busy show. Lots of news. And only about 90 seconds will probably be spent on the actual Carlisle match, but there's still so much to cover. First off, I'm going to cover my drink, and it is a derby week, so this is serious business, and I'm having a serious scotch. It's Johnny Walker Platinum Label Blended Scotch Whiskey. Private blend, aged for 18 years. Um, It's probably about one-third of a little 200-milliliter bottle that my father stuffed into my hand while we were changing cars this morning because mine needs to go into the shop. Did he know it was Derby Week? That's why he thought you needed some extra good whiskey. I I have plenty of good whiskey in the house, but I figured I would... (laughs) uh, Just good timing. It's 18 years old, which is like uh, just about the last time we were in the Premier League. So this was bottled... (laughs) At the same time that we bottled our uh, last Premier League campaign. See what I did there? I did. I, I did. That's why I, I didn't laugh. I don't even get like the little uh, exhausted sigh you're making fun of me for. Fully started on air. <laughs> Maybe this. Uh, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do have a full complement your- of podcasters this week, even if we're not all fully fit. It is a Derby week. We have to battle through. On the line, the. Sickly, just woken up, Evan Skelter. Evan, do you have something to take the edge off? I've not even had a chance to to get a drink. I was supposed to... I just woke up from what was supposed to be a wee nap after work. 
and uh, it turned into a four-hour slumber. So I, uh, I'm still trying to wake up, and I forgot to even pick something up on my way to the computer. Evan, have you read the agenda? I, I do have that up right in front of me. The the king is dead is uh, is coming up next. In case don't anyone's don't give me the magic. I had to prove that I had it. Oh okay. Also on the line is Patty Jones. Patty, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a Lagunitas, the last of my New Year's Eve leftovers. Lagunitas Maximus. Yeah. What were you drinking before that? Just for the record. I was drinking a Lagunitas Maximus and nothing else. <laughs> Patty, does, <laughs> Patty does not want you to know that he was uh, drinking a Red Stripe before we came on air. It's the New Year's Eve leftovers. I've got nothing left in my fridge but leftovers, and Red Stripe was there. And unfortunately, I've saved one more after this Lagunitas too. So I will have two Red Stripe tonight. Hooray, beer! <laughs> Are you feeling like beer, Evan, at the moment? What? I, I missed that. You feel that. like beer? We were discussing it uh, in WhatsApp before we started recording, and we've discovered that a good marketing slogan for Red Stripe will be, everyone remembers when they had their last Red Stripe. It's both, uh, so bad. It sounds kind of ominous, yes. but Ten years ago, it was horrible. <laughs> James Allen, what are you drinking? Uh, my last Red Stripe was in uh, Manchester Academy in about 2004. Uh, it was warm, and it tasted like piss. Um, so I, I guess that's probably exactly what Paddy had this evening. Um, I'm not drinking Red Stripe. Um, I'm drinking the, uh, first and foremost, I'm actually back in the States, which is rather nice uh, for the first time in a month. Uh, so I'm not joining you from bed in the, the middle of the night. It's actually a, a reasonable tower of the evening. Um, I'm drinking the last of my um, my British um, craft beer hall, though, uh, which I didn't quite get to finish in Sheffield. So I brought it back with me because I thought it was going to be apt for this conversation, which is a uh, it's a collaboration brew, uh, which I picked up at Beer Central in the Moor Market. Uh, so hello to Sean if he's listening. I don't think he will be because he's a Barnsley fan. Um, but it's a collaboration between the North Brewing Co., uh, which is uh, up in West Yorkshire. I won't say exactly where because it's a slightly controversial city to the north of us. Um, and uh, the Brewage de Molen uh, in, uh, in Holland. And uh, we're all Dutch, aren't we? So uh, I'm drinking an Imperial Stout, which is simply called North Times Demolin. Uh, and it's uh, it's a 10% Imperial Stout. And uh, it's absolutely uh, cracking, actually. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation in my uh, my new Dutch guise. I'm surprised you got it through JFK with all the luggage and stuff at the moment, uh, James. That's why um, I waited for five hours in JFK for my luggage, but I, mean, I had some <laughs> precious cargo. Okay. Well, thank God that got through. Paul Owen, what are you drinking? All right, chaps. I'm uh, celebrating uh, Derby Week with uh, probably the prettiest bottle of beer I've ever bought. It's um, It's got a little red owl on it. I'll, I'll probably put it on the socials, but it's um, from the um, Hitachino Nest um, White Ale, it's called. It's from um, the Kiyuchi Brewery in Japan, if anyone's familiar with those guys. Uh, absolute quality. Yeah, it's got a red owl on it. It's not called an owl. It's called the Hitachino Nest. Um, it's from Japan. A red owl? Yeah. <laughs> this week? Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. Ah, uh, Paul. Paul, it's also not the only thing you're celebrating this week, too, right? Are we allowed to mention anything else? Already. It was in the, it was in the agenda for Have much later on. Have you read down to I was the end of the to... agenda yet? I had a whole oh, spiel set up for wait, any other two pages? I was two pages of agenda? <laughs> was this was a very loose I episode. I said we <laughs> had a lot of things to cover, Patty. I thought you were lying. I think that was a two pages of this agenda. Christ almighty. There I is two. I haven't gotten to previewing okay. the agenda yet that you haven't read the second page of. 
Uh, no, that's a it's a great teaser for later on. So <laughs> stay yeah. tuned. Just building suspense. <laughs> Before that, I will preview the agenda, and the king is dead, as Evan mentioned. The Carlos era is no more. Yoss, the boss, is in town. There was football. We're not really going to discuss it. Um, and there's lots to look forward to after Friday, possibly. Maybe before Friday. Maybe on Friday. Who knows? Uh, there'll be a interesting preview, as we do. A little different this week, but not really. But we need to spend a little bit of time on Wednesday's FA Cup tie. The magic of the cup. A nil-nil draw at Carlisle. So the clean sheet, there's that, Paul. That's all. That's all we have to look up and forward to. Uh, Evan, yeah, I, I think, think the, names. I anyone think the can crickets, jump in here. Yeah, the crickets are appropriate here, I believe. Hit the woodwork a couple times. Knew he would probably should have scored a header, but for a good save, conceded an offside goal, which to be fair enough, was clearly offside. So yeah. I actually watched the highlights. Yes. Seven and a half minutes of highlights I watched, mm. uh, about 15 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> and it was the first match we haven't um, had an eye follow, which is why we all seem underprepared and underwhelmed. Um, well, the league, the league Cup game wasn't on an eye follow either, was it? Um, yeah, you're right, Paul, yeah. Uh, I've already I don't even remember that. that at this point, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it won't be too long to flip this one either. Um, so yeah, he started off okay. I mean... Atty News, throwing himself around as usual. It always starts off um, okay. It's good for the first 15 minutes. Yeah, I mean, nothing really much happened. We, I mean, we hit the post uh, we hit the post once with Jow later on in the game. Atty hit the bar in the first few minutes, I think. Uh, then there's a really tame shot, uh, which was saved by the keeper. Um, so again, Atty proved a little bit of a bright spark in a generally dull match. And I think 0-0 was um, a pretty fair reflection of it all. Yeah, I think a lot of people were disappointed because, uh, you know, Carlisle, they said 16th in League Two. And so, you know, irritation was was um, appropriate, I suppose. But we have to remember how much was going on around the club at the same time we were trying to play the match. And so, you know, finishing nil-nil, it, it stinks we have to play a replay. But at the same time, it, it's good to, to have one at home. And, um, you know, at least we didn't get knocked out by Carlisle because there were quite a few things going on um quite quite a few upsets i I suppose on the weekend in the fa cup so at least we didn't fall victim to that on the other hand with all the stuff going around the club you'd think perhaps maybe the squad would want to put in a good show for the uh new gaffer well i'll tell you what judging judging by the pictures uh online after the match he he was having a good time nonetheless uh it seemed like everyone was pretty excited to to, to see him out and about and uh, it looked like him and Chance Siri were getting on well. When you say out and about, Evan, have you got any uh, any context <laughs> on exactly where they were out and about? <laughs> no, did you did you see the pictures? That I have was, seen the pictures, yeah. I just wondered if you, if like you know that particular station? locality. Yeah. It wasn't oh, a train station. It's not Are a train we... station. It, if I said to you Scotch Corner, what would what would that conjure up for you? Uh, Jeff's Kitchen. <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> Like he that. gets a laugh for that, Patty. <laughs> he absolutely gets a laugh for that. Well earned. Yeah. Um, so Scotch quality. Corner is a uh, is a sort of famous um, sort of interstate rest area in the UK. Except um, it's not on an interstate. Imagine like the tiniest road in rural Ohio, 
um, it's that's basically the A1 that connects England to wet, to Scotland. Um, and Scotch Corn is just basically a petrol station on that uh, that road, and it's about the only petrol station of about forty miles between uh, I don't know somewhere south of uh, of Glasgow and uh, and somewhere else near Newcastle. So it's basically the only place you can stop and uh, sort of relieve yourself and get some uh, some snacks on the way back from Carlisle. It turned out everybody stopped there, including Chan Siri and uh, and the new boss. So they all had a little party. It looked great. I'm trying to imagine. This. I'm trying to imagine being a passerby, just an innocent. You know, not not a Wednesday supporter, Carlisle supporter, just stopping to to have a piss, and and all of a sudden, all these people start screaming and shouting at this mustache. Well, I guess he didn't have a mustache that day, but just this random fella. Uh, it'd be quite the the spectacle for just a, a person innocently trying to take a rest from a drive. My favorite story about that was uh, there was a bunch of people posting pictures on Twitter. So, uh, and and this is kind of the first I knew of the Carlisle game because this is when I finally got off the plane and got signal. Um, but the, all the pictures were of, uh, of obviously Joss, who was apparently being mobbed. And a couple of fans said, oh, I managed to get a picture with Chansiri because uh, Joss, I couldn't get anywhere close to him. He just sort of stood off to the side looking a bit forlorn. So uh, so I, I don't know if DC was happy with the impact his new boss had, uh, had had or whether he was kind of feeling like he'd hogged the limelight a little bit. We'll see. Well, so DC is the Andrew Ridgely of the Wham analogy here. That's so sad for him. Way to, uh, way to appeal to the millennials in our audience there, Patty. <laughs> Fucking no millennials. Do we have any, uh, since it's not really on the agenda for the for the preview section later in the show, do we have any thoughts on the uh, on the replay next week since it will happen before we record again? Do we have to do this again next week? I mean, Carlisle. <laughs> I mean, like, how they should actually approach the game. Because it sets up nice. They have Stevenage or Reading at home in the next round if they win they can put a nice little cup run together and otherwise lost season yeah i think it's it's neat that that we need to set this straight is it joss or yoss i thought it yoss? was yoss yoss i like yoss um I, I think it's neat that yoss gets to uh, have a cup match to to manage uh, pretty early on in his wednesday tenure and not only that but it's against kind of a lowly side so hopefully uh, hopefully he gets something out of it and yeah, if, if we can put together a little cup run, that's something to, to get us energized here in, in a season that otherwise we don't have much to look forward to. We do have Yoss to look forward to. He was announced as the new manager last week. He is a Dutchman that managed in Germany and has the ability to grow a very good mustache in two days, James. Well, the perfect uh, in, perfect summary of our new manager, Jeff. I pretty much stole all my notes. Um, <laughs> not, not as well prepared as I probably ought to be for this segment. Uh, yeah, so uh, this time a week ago, I uh, put our hands up and said, you know what, from this uh, this list of runners and riders, the person I really want is uh, is Jos Luhuke. Um Well, I think we, we had that conversation, didn't we? And I don't think any of us did. Um, but he here he is. He was even um, on the, uh, the Bet365 long sheet somewhere in there with like Sven Goran Eriksson and uh some, I did, some in the I way back him, exactly. I did mention it in last week's podcast I'm sorry it, it was in back of my mind it was like tip of my tongue last week but I just didn't mention it it was my, one of my top tips I think <laughs> okay Paddy it was yeah Paddy, Paddy's comprehensive in his background research but it turns out so is uh, is Mr. Chancery and I, I you know first and foremost I think you know a lot of the time we've been spent talking about the managerial candidates was mostly dismissing them for, for various reasons that they didn't fit our billing or we just didn't downright like them. Well, um, in comes Mr. Luhuke, and, and frankly, 
aside from the the knee-jerk reaction of a few knuckleheads back in Sheffield whose uh, only uh, point that they can make is he's not English and he's not managed in the Championship before, neither of which appear to uh, be impeding the current Wolves manager, um, he uh, he really fits the bill. I mean, he's a he's a promotion specialist uh, in a uh, in a tough um, couple of leagues over in Germany. Um, he's been promoted out of Bundesliga two three times um, into the Bundesliga um, and and held in in high regard. Uh, in German football for those achievements. Um, as you said, he's um, he's a Dutchman um, by birth and, and actually uh, through a lot of his uh, his footballing career. Um, but he uh, he developed his uh, his coaching uh, skills, his coaching badges, uh, experience uh, in in the German football system, and um, and he's managed in some fairly illustrious places. He was at uh, FC Köln uh, in his early career, in Munchen Gladbach. He, uh, he I think was particularly successful at uh, Augsburg uh, and then Hertha Berlin. So, um, you know, he's he's got a real pedigree, uh, not in English football, but in in turning teams that are in not dissimilar positions to the one Wednesday find themselves in, perhaps underachieving in in the the second of uh, second division, um, and uh, and kind of getting them back into a, a path of uh, of successful football. He's a a known nonsense manager, from what we understand, uh, from from some excellent articles that have been published, particularly on uh, on Hours Alive, by the way. Uh, if people want to go and spend some time over on their site, they've got a couple of really good background articles, which have been developed by, uh, by people with you know, a lot of intimate knowledge of um, of the German game. Dale Jones, ESPN, as well, has, has done really good work there. Um, he's he's viewed in German football as someone who gets a, a very organised team ethic going, uh, promotes younger players into the squad. Um, and also, you know, is is a pretty his teams tend to play a pretty pressing. In other words, they don't wait to attack. So, uh, with a little bit of uh, time, uh, maybe a few lessons, we might have something to look forward to in the way that Wednesday approach games. Uh, certainly by the uh, the back end of this season, and and maybe some optimism about what he might be able to do with uh, a modified squad as we go into the, to the 2018-19 uh, season next year. It always amuses me when the the fan base gets upset that it's not an English manager and he doesn't know the championship. Like English managers haven't exactly covered themselves in glory in the championship in recent years either. Oh yeah. It's all about football. It, 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 you know, you can come over here and uh, not know a thing about the championship, but you, at the end of the day, you're playing, you're playing football and this guy seems to know the, the game inside and out. And you know, he has a great defensive record and that's something we really need in the team right now. I mean, if, if we were to place, our finger on, on a few top issues. Obviously, injuries comes first, but um, our defense is, is not sure in the back, and you know that's something that he's uh, he really harps on, and, and I like that a lot. And I was, you know, obviously didn't know who he was coming in, and you know the, it's funny that you have all these big names on the bet list, and that's who everyone throws out and talks about, and then all of a sudden, some guy no one's heard of is the new manager. But that's just how it works most of the time. No one knew who Carlos was either. And uh, this guy, he's got the track record as James just laid out. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm very happy with the appointment and, and hopefully it works out. Patty, do you think we can point to our new CEO as an influence here? Uh, no, <clears throat> I generally don't think she had anything to do with it. Uh, it didn't seem to be mentioned in the press conference afterwards, even though she was stood to the side of it. Uh, uh, I believe it was all uh, ran by uh, Chancery and his advisors. I think she probably came a little bit too late to have any kind of influence at all. And it seems like it's worked. I mean, for me, this is the this is a great appointment. Like you say, we didn't know him beforehand, but if you look at his CV, he's a promotion expert. 
he's a disciplinarian, which I think is the biggest thing for me. Uh, I think I read somewhere that um, he is really hot on people training hard. And if they're not training as hard as he expects them to, he will tell them and stop training. <laughs> um, and sometimes even fall out with them. And I think that's what we need at the moment. We need someone that's going to kick these um, players up the arse. Um, stop um, any kind of uh, like uh, laziness that's happening in training. Get them fit. Get as organized and defensive. And then we can push on from there. And I think it's an absolute great point. So uh, hats off to Mr. Chansiri and his advisors. Yeah, so this Dale Johnson, uh, he's from ESPN FC. He tweeted, uh, Lahuki's, I'm just going to say Yoss until we figure out how to say his last name. Uh, five training theses. One, winning builds team spirit. Two, taxi- tactics stand or fall on preparation. Three, playing five or six different systems is nonsense. Four, we are not here to have fun. Five, if the players are happy doing something, they do it better. So it seems like he's a straight-to-the-point type of guy. And that seems very German. <laughs> excited. And, and I'm also impressed at, uh, at the manager role rather than just labeled as head coach. Hopefully that, that points to some structure coming in the future. Uh, where we, you know, We've talked about it plenty on the show, but uh, we definitely need some structure in the club. But it's kind of interesting that you like, uh, you interpret it that way, actually, Evan. Because um, I've actually seen kind of, or at least the, the conversation that's been had, and I think this question was actually posed directly at uh, Mr. Yeah, Chancery in played, the, uh, the, the press conference. Played it down, said it didn't matter. But the interpretation that most fans have taken is that manager implies more complete control, which is certainly a, um, a kind of an indicator of the way that he's conducted himself at other clubs, i.e., that he he prefers to have complete control of transfer policy, of uh, of the footballing agenda, and and of coaching, uh, rather than deferring to a either a director of football or even a sporting director that you know many of us, myself included, have been advocating for. Um, and in fact, uh, his tenure at Stuttgart, his last club, was was very short because he you know quite spectacularly fell out with the uh, the sporting director there, and and that position became untenable very uh, very quickly. I think. He was only there for about five games, so. But that, that doesn't that, bother if me. If that manager title is true, it may actually imply that it may take us a little while to develop, you know, a sustainable infrastructure um, that the club can take forward. Um, albeit that, you know, maybe maybe he will uh, instill a different level of um, of, of kind of you know principle that, that uh, along the lines that you've just described, which can then be built upon, um, which is exactly what we have to hope for. But but that doesn't bother me at all. That that he's the one in charge of everything because before we kept talking we, we've had podcasts where we've discussed this and you know, we we didn't know who was in charge of the transfers and who was pulling the strings who was doing the scouting uh who was in charge of of you know labeling the players we bring in and, and now at least we know that and we know that he's kind of got a uh overall overarching over, overseeing role and uh i think that's good for us to at least understand you know where things are coming from, and and good to know that that he's got full control of of who he brings in, so so he can play his system and and um, find some success. Well, I wouldn't be too like confident that's the case. I mean, DC was very like like you say, James, very kind of like uh, non-committal almost over it. He didn't really say uh, he didn't really see a difference between head coach and manager. He said he, he said basically that he'd be doing the same role as Carlos would be doing. So I don't think anything is going to change as such, other than they decided to change the name from head coach to manager. Um, I know that's certainly what Yost prefers, being the in control of everything. Uh, and maybe that'll be a bit of a fight later on. But I don't necessarily. It's a massive change in ways of working. So 
if the CEO didn't have great involvement in manager selection, how do we think this will all fit in sort of the upper echelons of the club between Chensiri, Yoss, and Katrien? I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit already, haven't we? Is this um, all we've got is a little bit of history, haven't we? We've got, um, you know, we've got some some commentary from um, from Charlton, their fans, and what they experienced, and what to expect from her as a CEO. And then we've got a little bit of um, uh, documentation from um, the Stuttgart um, debacle, it seems, um, from Yossi's perspective. So, yeah, I mean, you know, so if I was if I was um, writing for uh, the, the the Mirror or somebody, I might say that you've got a, a fiery, hot-headed manager with a very kind of draconian CEO that's only going to end in sparks, you know, but, but actually if you, if you kind of, uh, you know, look into what actually happened, you know, and, and I'm, I'm certainly not one to defend the, uh, the appointment of the CEO. I'm still uh, very, very unsure if it's right, but uh, it does seem that, you know, it, some of the accusations that are leveled at her uh, don't necessarily fall at her feet. And there's lots of contradictions in, um, in the owner, Roland, um, What's his name? De Chatelet or something? Um, I think you know a lot. A lot. A lot of blame lies there, and maybe she was trying to do as good a job as she could, you know. Um, and maybe when when uh, Lukai stepped away from Stuttgart, you know, maybe um, you know, may, maybe that was because he, he wasn't working the way he wanted it to work. So we'll see. You know, um, is it a fit? I don't know. It's early to tell, but I'm certainly not going to jump on the kind of scandal bandwagon and say that uh, these two guys are too, uh, you know, chalk and cheese and aren't going to work. Paul, for a second there, I thought you were uh, starting to describe a romantic comedy between a draconian CEO and a <laughs> hot-headed coach. Sparks yeah, yeah. fly. Headed that way, wasn't it? Absolutely. So I guess we'll wrap up this first segment with a simple question. We'll go around the room, as it were. Are we happy? And not just with the Luhuke appointment, but just with the state of the club right now as we enter the Derby and the transfer window and everything else. Patty, we'll start with you. I'm happier than we uh, than I have been. Um, I think if he's everything he says on the tin, I think it's a great appointment. Um, I think as far as the state of the club goes, we're still in a bit of a mess with the injuries and stuff, so I can't be totally happy. And he's only got four days really to prepare for the biggest game of the season. Um, so I'm not expecting miracles, but I'm hoping he can work some, and I'm hoping we don't get thrashed on Friday. But overall, yep, I'm happy with Yos. James, no, I'm happy. Um, you know, I think there was a, a point last week where it felt like we'd perhaps had the Carlos departure forced on us uh, by the opportunity that he, I think, inevitably had been turned on to at Swansea. Um, and that there didn't necessarily seem to be a plan in the background, and and the appointment of Yoss, I think, is it, it suggests that you know the network that that Mr. Chamsiri has is more wide ranging than perhaps we give it credit for, um, and we've brought in a seasoned manager with you know the sort of experience profile who uh, is very very hard to get, um, someone who's held in very very high regards in in other leagues around Europe. So uh, I'm really pleased. Um, and in a matter of a couple of weeks, we've got a CEO and a, and a new head coach manager to to try and bring about a new era at Hillsborough. So I don't think we we really need to be doing anything other than right now than pulling together and saying, let's make the best of it. Uh, it might take us a little bit of time. We need to be patient. But um, this isn't a short-term thing. This is about getting behind this new era and uh, and making uh, making of it what we can. Evan? 
Yeah, cautiously optimistic, I suppose. Um, I, I think it was a good appointment, uh, at least based on on his history. And um, you know, I I don't I don't know if it's soon enough to to give us a miracle promotion this year. But like James said, I think we need to band together and, and be patient. And uh, I think I think it'll work out. And Paul. Yes, I am. I am. Uh, for me, there's there's a, a big t- page turn. So everything's turned now. We've got to forget forget yesterday and look forward to tomorrow. We've got a new CEO in place. Got a new manager. We've got a we've got a transfer window that's opened. You know, we've got half a season just under to go. And I I got my shirt. I got my white and gold shirt. It don't fit, of course, <laughs> but I'm not sending it back. I'm keeping it. It is what it is. But I'm turning the page. So yes, I'm happy. No, I'm not happy. I'm looking forward. I I agree with all the feelings expressed so far i do think we have to be patient with this transfer window and the and the upcoming run of games i could see it turning ugly if we do get a bit of a drubbing on friday just because it's the nature of the fan base in a lot of ways and it's almost uh you know untenable situation he's got to try to come in and reshape the squad in four days before the steel city derby but I guess on the other hand, if he manages to get a result and, or even somehow avoids the double, he'll have sort of put down a marker, and I think the fans will, uh, will jump right in with him. And with that, we'll take a break. We come back. It's the return of how I became a Wednesdayite with a very special guest. We're back to normal service here on the Owls AmeriCast. We have a special guest for our second half of the show, and we will be asking him the same question we ask uh, all of our guests, whether American or expat. It's uh, Steve Cook, who is the current head coach of the Oklahoma City FC Energy in the USL. He's coached all over MLS, uh, but you might know him as a lifelong Wednesdayite, former youth coach at the club so steve i imagine uh your baptism into wednesday came at quite a young age yeah for sure i'm you know i I think it's something you are born into it's not something you choose along your pathway i think you know you know when you you know i'm from chapel town originally and uh you know, my my dad and my granddad and all my family and everybody on the street basically was it was a Wednesday night. So it's something that you you kind of get taken to before your earliest memories, and you you just kind of get told that's what you're going to do. So that's what you do, and you grow to love it no matter what. And uh, there isn't really another choice, is that you're you're a Wednesday fan, and that's it. So your Definitely. role to coaching is a little unusual. Um, you actually. <laughs> took over at youth coach as a, at a very young age. So how did you get that position and what did you do before that? Yeah, it, it was an interesting one because um, I, I think I was about 21 or 22. And, and before that, I'd done, you know, FA qualifications. I'd been on coaching courses and I actually wasn't good enough as a player and, and uh, made my way into coaching. My dad kind of sent me on a coaching license when I was 16 and when uh, I wasn't quite good enough as a player to become what people would regard as a professional player who could earn some money at the game, um, I decided to go to college and, and uh, 
I went to university uh, and I went to Carnegie College to be a, a, a teacher. So I went and did an education degree. And uh, uh, when I left there and, and I graduated, Clive Baker, who was the youth development officer at the time at Sheffield Wednesday, made a phone call to me and I'd, I'd known Clive for a little bit. And he basically just asked me to, to go down to the club and visit with him. Um, and when I got down to the club and we, we had a, a little conversation and he, he threw me into a session that, that day and basically said, right, okay. He just assumed that that's something I would want to do. And um, before I knew it, I was at the club coaching with, with the youth teams and doing the, so I went back and forth from the, doing the youth teams in Sheffield. I ran uh, the Centre of Excellence with Dave Parnaby up in Gateshead, uh, went to Barrow in Finesse to do some of the Centre of Excellence work there alongside the Sheffield group as well. And it was really in, in a, a very young age, a, a, a baptism where in those formative years of learning, I was around some phenomenal people and the club was obviously thriving at the time and in the Premier League. And so I was able to work with some really, really good young players and some fantastic coaches, some great experienced people. And Clive Baker, who I regard as a real mentor of mine and somebody who I, I held in the highest regard then and I still do today and, and uh, may rest in peace. He, he was somebody who brought me into the club at that time and showed me the way of, of coaching. And, and I uh, I really, really thrived and enjoyed it immensely and did a lot of miles on motorways and, and, and went to work with a lot of great players. And some of those players, you know, made great careers from, for themselves and some, some didn't. But it was a, just a really, really great experience and, and something I'm forever thankful for. And it, it stood me in good stead. And Long may that continue, but I'm forever grateful for those early years at Sheffield Wednesday. It, it's kind of awesome to hear that name, Clive Baker, actually, Steve. He's, he's a name that I remember reading about when I was a young fan at Hillsborough. Um, I guess he, yeah. he kind of featured pretty prominently in kind of, you know, uh, club news uh, in the early 90s when I started supporting. And yeah. and that period, um, you know, we've spoken about quite a lot as we've launched this podcast and, um, and with other Wednesday nights, you know, that period in the 90s is kind of so formative now for so many people in terms of remembering what it was like when Wednesday were a Premier League club. So, so that correlated with you being a coach there. Have you got any particularly special memories of, of that time and, and the, you know, the playing squad that you were around uh, through those years? Yeah. I mean, they were all great memories. I mean, I think as a Wednesday fan, you look back on those days, and I was lucky, lucky to work at the club at the time. And obviously, it's my my boyhood club and supported since birth. And you know, you, you you're a fan on the terraces, and you go to all the games, and you you you're a bit of a crazy fan. And then to suddenly be working at the club with someone like Clive Baker, and then before you know it, not only that, but the club are in the Premier League, and it's kind of like a bit of a whirlwind. And and I, I must say that during those early years, right at the the end of Ron Atkinson's era where we won the, the League Cup in 91 and then, you know, four times at Wembley in 1993 and obviously lost in, in both cup finals, unfortunately, I kind of must admit to you that as a young coach at the time, I thought it was, it was normal. I thought it was something <laughs> year after year and every two, three years we'd go to Wembley and we'd be playing in the UEFA Cup and we'd be you know, competing with the likes of Man United and Arsenal and Liverpool at the time. And I thought it would never end, I'll be honest. You know, and we had some great, great years, as you know. I mean, and, and some of those players, when you look back at the the Chris Waddles, the Des Walkers, the David Hurst and Carlton Palmers and John Sheridans of the world and Chris Woods in goal. I mean, there's so many to mention. I mean, they were not only great players for Sheffield Wednesday, but they were they were great players 
in any era for any club. You know, they they were the the, the top top professionals, and not only that, but it was a fun time to be around, and the players had a great time, and all of the youth teams were doing especially well as well. And we had, I think, in a three year span, we had eight players in the England under fifteen team, and so the whole club was a, a vibrant atmosphere. And again, I must say, I must apologise because I thought it would never end. And uh, I think when I came to America in 1996, I think it was maybe a year or so after that that the club got relegated from the Premier League and uh, and have obviously never been back as we all would lament. You know, well, it's your fault. I'll, You're I'll our saviour. On... <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish I could blame myself. That it would be easier that way. But I think there's some other considerations as well. But I just look back on those those years as being so special and I'm sure that I'm not the only Wednesday fan who looks back on those years and remembers those players and those people and like I said I was a very small part as a youth coach and trying to help some of the young players develop and become future professional players and um, I just obviously I pine for those years as a Wednesday fan because now I'm in America I'd love to be able to wake up with the great coverage we have here on NBC every weekend and watch my team but obviously it's, it's been a little bit limited in the last 20 years or so so <laughs> yeah. you know I, I look back I was very fortunate you know really really lucky to not only be around great people and great great coaches like Clive Baker but also from the, the plain start side those players were, were terrific guys terrific professionals and I think really took the club to a level in the modern era at least that that we, we we today can only probably dream about as Wednesday fans. You know, I think it was a really great time to be a Wednesdayite and a great time to watch football if you're from Sheffield. It definitely was, yeah. Were there anyone in in particular, or like uh, mentors to you that period, um, Steve, or any kind of people that stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, the whole group. I mean, when you look at, I remember the vibrancy of the Ron Atkinson uh, coaching, but obviously Clyde Baker for me was a special person and when I looked down at the people like Albert Phelan who were around and, and really, really, really top class people, top class, class professionals and had been around and seen it all. And they, they really showed that, that coaching was not only something that was cool to do, you know, and, and but it was a profession and it was something to be worked hard at, and, you know, people getting to work at, six and seven AM and working all weekend and really, really holding the club in high regard. And I just think that at that time it was play people and players who were, were really in love with what they were doing. And I think it was probably a little bit <clears throat> prior to the money coming into the game like it is today. Obviously everybody was well paid and more than your average person in the street, but I just think that it was probably a little bit of a I look back probably with rose-coloured spectacles on, but um, I just think it was a little bit before the modern era where, you know, people were a little bit more into their club and what, rather than following just just the, the personalities of the players. And, you know, there were so many people to mention. It would be wrong to, to miss people out. But, you know, for me, Clyde Baker is, is obviously, a, he's been a really important person, not only in my career, but probably in the careers of many, many young people as well. And I don't just mean from a football standpoint, I'm talking about as a as a human being who could show you how to be a man as much as he could show you how to be a player or a coach. So, you know, Clyde Baker is the top of my list as well when it comes to being a mentor and somebody who I admired then and I uh, I still admire today, even, even though he's, he's, he's gone from us. 
No, his, his, his reputation precedes him. But as I said, he, he kind of stands out to a lot of fans who remember the club in that era. I, I, I think one of the interesting things that you're saying there, Steve, is it's kind of a, a bit of a contrast, actually, between what is probably a bit of a common perception and, and the reality that you, you were seeing up close, which is that there's this kind of perception that, that that squad with you know some of the stars that we know and love the, the David Hursts the uh, the Carlton Palmers John Sheridan's was you know kind of pretty much a kind of play hard party hard have fun but also you know obviously you know highly highly successful and and, and wonderful footballers and, and probably delivered success like Wednesday haven't known in in 50 odd years um, yeah. you, you're kind of you, you're alluding to kind of a harder work ethic and a harder coaching ethic that supported that that success that that maybe doesn't get spoken to all that much. And it it'd be fascinating just to hear a few more thoughts on, you know, the kind of you know what went into structuring that squad in in certainly in that kind of ninety one through ninety three ninety four period, um, you know, to, to kind of deliver the success that we had on the pitch. Yeah, and, and obviously at that time I was a bit on the outside. I mean, I'm working as a youth coach, so it was, a, a, again, very young and very fortunate to be around. But, you know, I agree with you that that group had a reputation of being, I wouldn't say playboys, but, but the image of the club actually changed a little bit at that moment. And I think Ron Atkinson had a big part to do with that, where it went from being a typical Sheffield working class you know, very humble kind of group to being almost a group of world stars. And when you bring in people like Des Walker and Chris Woods, and then when someone like Chris Waddle gets added to the group, you, you, you know that you're in the limelight, you know, and they brought a different atmosphere to the club, I think, and a different expectation to the club, probably one that I'd never seen in, in my days of supporting the club. But they not only had fun and went to work and were great to be around and there was a lot of laughs and a lot of smiles and it was a real good atmosphere, but they worked hard every day at their craft and they were, they were intelligent and they thought clearly about the game. And I remember a lot of sessions where there would be uh, little arguments and things like that where players were tactically trying to work it out with the coaches and Trevor Francis made them really work hard. And if you remember when Trevor came to the club, he, he was a, he had a reputation as being a bit of a hard-nosed coach, and I think at QPR it had kind of it upset one or two people with that and been quite demanding. And and that group of players worked really hard and were very serious about their craft. And yeah, you know, they had a good time and, and at times probably enjoyed a couple of beers as well. You know, and and I think back in that day it was a little bit more accepted to to be that way. Um, and nowadays they might not get away with it, but don't, make no mistake, not only were that group of players very talented but they were also hard working and very professional at the right times and then when they could let their hair down they let their hair down I remember a couple of Christmas parties that were fun but I can't really talk too much about that you know so you mentioned you uh, left for the States in 1996 and for someone that's studied and coached and sort of dealt with English football their whole life that had to be a pretty big culture shock for you what sort of brought about that decision yeah, it was a it was a big culture shock, and and I, I went literally. I was offered a position in Phoenix, Arizona, and, and coaching youth, and and I'd visited a friend of mine there, and and in '93, funnily enough, and uh, never thought anything about leaving Sheffield or or anything like that. You know, leaving leaving England to come to America was a was a big choice, and I went to my dad, the first person, and I asked him, "What do you think?" And he basically said to me. 
you know, if you want, you, you should give it a go. You know, it'll be a good challenge. And, and really, you know, if I were you, I would do it. And if it doesn't work out, you can come, come back and live with us. And I thought, okay, that's weird because my dad's only ever lived in, you know, the same area all his life. And I went to my granddad and my granddad, had, who was a coal miner for 48 years, had said to me, you know, if I were you, I would give it a go and, and go and do it. And more and more, I'm thinking, this is crazy. These people have never left, you know, the neighborhood, let, let alone, you know, gone across a country, you know. And then uh, I went, the final person was Clive Baker and uh, Clive was phenomenal. And if you remember, Clive had traveled the world and coached and been in different places before soccer was even really kind of regarded as something in other countries. And he traveled and, and seen the world and had some great experiences. And he told me, look, he said, you'll never regret it. You really should go. You'll never look back. And if uh, you, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'll give you your job back here. No problem at all. So at that time I thought, this is awesome. I'm going to be able to, you know, leave England, leave Sheffield Wednesday and I'll be back in two months and I'll go over and have a party and it's going to be a nice time. And <laughs> for a while there, you ask about the culture shock. I probably in the first six months, eight months, 10 months could have gone home every single day, you know, different, different food, different places, different people. Uh, the level of soccer I was working at wasn't nearly as good. And I just felt uh, almost I, I should have gone home, you know, and then I was actually offered a job at Fulham uh, by Alan Smith and, uh, um, I went over and interviewed and I, I went back to Scottsdale, Arizona and said, I'm, I'm going to definitely do this. I'm going to go back and I'm going to work in London and it's going to be good. And I came back to Scottsdale and, you know, I had a, had a bit too much of a nice time for a week or so and then decided that I had too much here to probably get on with and, and see how far I could actually go. And part of me where people had said to me in the past where it might not work in the States for me, I kind of wanted to prove people wrong and, give it a go. And, and so I, I straight away turned the job down and, and really knuckled down and said, right, I'm going to make a career of this. I'm going to make, I'm going to make this my craft and I'm going to really work hard to uh, make it, make a real long-term career out of it and be a success. And luckily I was around great people who pushed me hard. And I think I, I did, did so with them as well and uh, never really looked back. And it, it was a big, big culture shock. And as you would know that living in America, not only you are you around Americans, but you're around people from all over the world. So I've been really fortunate in, in the, the last 20 years or so to work with not only people from Europe, but people from South America and North America and Asia and Africa and every single corner of the planet is, is I think, something that I really regard as being an experience that I'm really delighted I, I was able to have because I think all of those people and all of those cultures and, and ethnicities and religions and the way that people think about not only the game, but think about life in general. I think I was really, really fortunate to be able to gain from all of the experiences that those people were able to pass on. And uh, I think coming to America, yes, it, it was a culture shock for me personally, originally, um, but I think it's one that once I worked through that period and, and got past that first year, I think it's one that really, really enhanced not only myself as a soccer coach, but it really enhanced me as a human being as well. I just got to ask basically from uh, from Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, Steve, where did you go on from uh, from there? And, uh, and what was like the uh, it was another big move, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I worked 
in Scottsdale, Arizona for, for 11 years and, and oh, wow. lo- absolutely loved it. And, um, you know, anyone who's ever visited there will tell you it's a fantastic place to live and, and great people. And we had a great deal of success with some really hardworking people. And um, I then was offered a position actually by Mitch Murray, who was the, the former Santa Clara University coach. And he uh, asked me if I'd take up a position in um, in Las Vegas and um you know, I barely even ever thought of myself as being in America, let alone living in Las Vegas, a place like this. And <laughs> I went and visited there and, 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 you know, undertook this opportunity and I was there for three years. And the, the real big thing about Las Vegas was culturally, it was very, very different from where I'd come from, where in, in the clubs I was at in, in Arizona, everyone was hardworking and dialed in and really, really striving for just being outstanding. And in, in Vegas, I thought I could immediately imprint myself and the culture that I'd come from in Arizona and immediately do that in Las Vegas and say, right, okay, I'm here now, let's go, and we're going to do it just the same way. And I probably underestimated how quickly you should implement something into a culture. And I think I failed in that regard because I just felt that you could go into any town in the world, work hard, do the same kinds of things, and it would instantly work. And, I, and I, I, I grasped pretty quickly that the culture there was a little different, um, that people were different there than, 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 than I'd experienced in, in Arizona and, and that you couldn't just do the same things. And I think if I had one, uh, when I look back now and I reflect on my time there, I probably rushed to try to achieve too many things too quickly there. And we, we did well, you know, we were nationally successful and, and the teams improved. But I just questioned myself a little bit that I went into a brand new place and decided to implement things a, a little too quickly, you know, in Las Vegas. And, and then from there, you know, three years later, I was really fortunate to be to be given the opportunity at the Colorado Rapids in Major League Soccer. And uh, that's probably the one thing that I look back and I think what a, what a, what a really great decision that was to uh, move from Las Vegas to Colorado. It was a, a massive drop in salary and... Uh, one that I just gambled that I wanted to be back in the professional game. I, I kind of missed my days at Sheffield Wednesday and I really wanted to take up that opportunity in Colorado. So, uh, you know, 2010, I ended up in Colorado and uh, spent eight great years at the Rapids. So, so you mentioned that you missed the Wednesday. Um, we, we're kind of curious. Uh, we spoke to Sean, Sean, uh, Sean McCauley the other week and uh, kind of <laughs> caught right. up with what him. It seems that we've kind of Breeding a, a coaching kind of quality kind of vein over here now. You know, got you got James in Louisville, got Sean in Portland, yep. yourself in Oklahoma. I mean, there's something special there. And uh, one of our questions to to, to all of you is uh, how how closely connected are you now to the Wednesday? How, how you know are you following? Are you watching? Are you in touch? I I do. Uh, you know, I'd like to I'd like to follow it much more closely. And, and like I said, I wish I could wake up and watch us on NBC every every Saturday or Sunday morning. You know. Um, the last game I was at was was uh, a couple of weeks ago, obviously the Nottingham Forest game on Boxing Day. Um, I don't know if you remember John Metgod, who was a great player at Real Madrid and Nottingham Forest and Tottenham Hotspur. Well, John is now on the board of directors at um, Nottingham Forest, and he worked with us for a year in Col- at Colorado as an assistant coach with me at the Rapids. So I went back to see John and was lucky to see Wednesday win three nil there. And I, you know, yeah, I promised him that I'd, I'd be quiet in the stands. So I was, I was a little quiet near the board of directors <laughs> there. But um, 
it was a great win for Wednesday. So I, I tried to follow the group, but, you know, you mentioned Sean there and you mentioned James, who, who are great people and, and very, very experienced coaches and do a, do a terrific job. And I, I just think that culture, that hardworking, working-class culture that you and you know from being in Sheffield and that, that northern grit that people kind of take for granted when you, when you, from where we're from, and I just get a feeling that that probably stands you in good stead when you become a coach because there are some days that are not easy when you're a coach and there are some days when you when you wake up out of bed and you, you've really got to say to yourself, come on, let's go here and let's grind this one out because there are some days that, you know, it, it's not always as, as rosy as people would, would imagine. And I think that determination, you know, that culture of where we come from and that, you know, and I'm sure you've got many listeners here who come from the same background where, they look back on their, their days as a kid and, you know, it wasn't always easy and it wasn't always, you know, pats on the back and, and you know, you didn't have a swimming pool in your backyard like many people I, I know here in America. And it was that, I think it's something about that grit and that background and that environment that you brought up in that enables you to be relatively successful as a coach because I think it does, it's not probably as as rosy as people would think, you know, and, and, and there are some days where they're difficult, especially with the media sometimes. And uh, I think it allows you to get out of bed and, you know, roll up your sleeves and go out and do a hard day's work. So I'm, I'm forever grateful for those, uh, those early days in Sheffield. Yeah. And I think, uh, you, you know, just shout out to James. He's, he's kind of continued his kind of tenacity from the midfield that we saw at Hillsborough into uh, Louisville, not he? And consequently, Definitely. I guess we have to, we, we have to ask, don't we? He's the champ. You're going to play him. You looking forward to it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I look forward to every challenge. And, uh, and for sure, you know, James has now got that target on his back with Louisville. And, and I will tell you, it's not just this one season where they won the championship. They've been incredibly consistent and very, very good for three years now. And I think James has done a terrific job of not only being the coach but being the leader of that group and really leading that organization and building the group up through a few years and they don't really have star players that that some of the other groups have had they haven't paid the big big salaries to certain high profile former international players that that the other groups have done and I think he's really built a team culture as opposed to a you know buying the best individual players and hoping that it works out and so I credit James a great deal and, uh, you know, like I say, he's got that target on his back and part of my job this next season is to, to try to emulate his success and, and win a championship here in Oklahoma. And I think the big lesson I've learned from watching people like James and looking at his group this year is that it really is about a team of people and not just about one or two individuals. It really is about building a culture and building an environment and then hopefully enhancing everybody's individual performances into the team culture and making sure that we're all successful. And, you know, I think it's sometimes ignored that even with the massive, massive amounts of money that people get paid these days and transfer fees and everything, it is still about building a team and not just about a group of individuals. And you can't just buy four great players and, and, and immediately have success. It takes time and it takes everybody's uh, nose is pointing in the same direction. And I think, uh, James O'Connor down there in Louisville has, has shown that immensely well over the last three years. And this year, I think he was rightly rewarded with a championship. And uh, let's just hope he uh, 
doesn't quite do the same thing this year. But I, I wouldn't mind playing him in the final. You know, that would be nice in Oklahoma. <laughs> if, if, we Absolutely. In, if we could play them in the final in, in Oklahoma and beat them this year, it would be a, it would be a year well spent. Well, we've got uh, uh, our host is not actually on the uh, call today. He's a big Louisville City fan, so uh, if you are playing him in the final, maybe we come down and watch the match. Uh, <laughs> um, well, if, so, if we win the champagnes on me, and if not, the beers are on me. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's hope that that happens. Excellent. I look forward to it. So I'll bring it on to you, your, your team. Like I say, congratulations on your new role. You just got appointed the manager of uh, the Oklahoma City Energy. Um, yeah, so what are your you. aspirations for the season? Well, obviously, I mean, this time of the year, it's awesome because everybody looks at it and says, right, none of us have got any points. Maybe we'll end up with a championship. And uh, th- that, <laughs> would be the, that would be the aspiration is that, you know, you, you, we all want to win a championship and, and win a conference title. So in, and in here, for us to win the Western Conference would be, would be immense. And then to go through the playoffs and be in the final and win it would be, would be the, 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 the goal. But obviously, I realise that every single one of the teams in, in our league this year will also have the same aspirations. So it's not something that is new to anybody. I think I'm a, a big believer in making sure that we get the process of work right and we build the group the right way so that we have an opportunity. So one of the big things for me would be, uh, a goal for me would be to win the next game, whatever that game would be. And obviously, when we start our pre-season on February 1st, our first pre-season game, we're obviously not worried about the result as much. We're worried about the performance and building the fitness. But do well in that game. And then when the first league game starts, win the next game, win the next game, win the next game. And if you stay true to that philosophy and work week to week and really build your group from a from a process-oriented standpoint and work hard weekly to improve everybody's performances and collective performances, I think at the end of the season, you've got a great chance to be part of a championship culture and and that's something we, that we want to do here but again it's not something that you can just hope for and wish for it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of people working in the same direction on a daily basis and really making sure that you strive for that daily excellence and I, I think you rightly say that for me this last season you know Louisville and James O'Connor there did a did a fantastic job of that and that's something that for, for my aspiration is, you know, first have a great preseason and then from there go go week to week and try to do really well in every single game and hope that at the end of the year that brings us a championship. So that would be the aspiration. Um, and again, like I said, everyone has that same hope at this time of the year. None of us have got any points and none of us have kicked a ball yet. Um, but I, I really believe that... Uh, you know, there's some great work going on in the league and hopefully this season we can uh, we can do some good things and, and win a championship. So as a new coach, we're going to lean on your expertise. Wednesday just brought in a new manager of their own. What do you think is realistic for the rest of the season for Luhuke coming in as a new coach and maybe anything you saw in the Forest game or other games this year that you can see as sort of points of coaching emphasis going forward? Yeah, I mean, obviously I did it at the Rapids this year where I took over and, and um, it's not easy, you know, in the initial instance and uh, especially when the team's not been doing particularly well and unfortunately at Sheffield Wednesday we, we haven't had the best run of late in general and, and, and certainly uh, this season has probably not got to the level of expectations that the fans would have had. Um, I think it's going to take some time for him to understand the culture, understand the players 
I don't think there's a quick fix. I don't think it's something that he can go in and say, right, within uh, two or three or four games, win them all, and then suddenly they'll be back in the playoff picture. I hope that that happens. But I think he's going to probably take time to assess the group and, and this transfer window assess if he needs to make any alterations and adjustments and really then try to mould that group into his vision and his philosophy and, and make certain that he is true to himself as he as he builds that group going forwards. And I actually think Carlos did a did a fantastic job and you know, to, to be in the playoffs two years in a row and fall just short was obviously bitterly disappointing and I think Carlos has, has got a great future ahead of him. But sometimes a change is needed and, and obviously that's what the club decided. And I think patience is needed from the fans because it's not it's not easy. There isn't a quick fix unless you spend hundreds of millions. And uh, I just hope that, that, again, this manager has given time and, and, and the fans are patient. I think reasonable expectations that he shows growth, um, not only uh, with the team in terms of results, but how they play and the way they approach games. And is there something then to look forward to for the remainder of uh, next season? And if that means that they're in the playoffs and, and get lucky and, and get into the Premier League, fantastic. But I think from my perspective at this point, it would be how much growth is there in the next six months ready for a great summer and then a, a wonderful campaign in uh, in the in the 2018-2019 season. And, you know, as a Wednesday fan, there's nothing would make me happier than seeing them back in the Premier League. But uh, it's been a long time. So uh, I don't suppose, you know, the next five months is, is going to, uh, you know, change things too dramatically. I think it's, it's a little bit of patience, and uh, hopefully, this manager is given time. And, and you know, in the years ahead, they do a really great job. Return to the Premier League and give us some of that fun back in the game as a Sheffield Wednesday fan. Well, I hope you're right, Steve. Uh, I like a bit of optimism on the podcast. Um, well, I think we could talk to you for all, all, all night. You've got such a varied career and such a, uh, an awesome uh, uh, chat, chat uh, guest to have on the podcast, mate. Uh, appreciate your your time. Um, I wish you all the best of luck with the energy this season. Uh, and I hope um, we can uh, cross paths again. Yeah, listen, it's been a real pleasure. And, and, and let me just say, you know, Happy New Year to all the Wednesday fans out there. I've really enjoyed being on. And, and any time, if you want to call me again, chat about anything Sheffield Wednesday soccer in America or anything at all in general. I'd, I'd love to be on, on the show again. And uh, anytime, please just don't hesitate. Give me a call. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Have a good night. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate it. Before we hand into the Derby preview... We do have some under Wednesday news to cover. I think like 48 hours after we were hearing that Hutch will be ready to go for the Derby, it was revealed that he has a hernia and will be out for the foreseeable future. I guess this is why Hutch is not a Premier League player, because he certainly has the talent to be. It's because he can only get into 20 games a season. But I think this game, more than some of the recent ones, is one you really would have liked to have Hutch in there. How many hernias do we have in the squad now? I feel like there's more hernias than an old folks home. That's, <laughs> sh- that's surely not an actual normal injury for a footballer, a hernia, is it? 
It's not, I, mean, I think as long as I've been watching four, people have got hernias. But the question is, how many hernias can an individual have, Paddy? Uh, <laughs> just, just got lumps by poking out of everything. If, we, if we've got like 60 hernias, then we've got a real problem because we've got players with them, bul- their intestines are bulging everywhere. <laughs> I thought it was hips. It was more of a pensioner's injury, isn't it? The hips. We've got five hip injuries, haven't it's we? It's all hips and hernias. It is like old folks' home. <laughs> uh, It'll be osteoporosis next. In happier news. Gout. Stephen Fletch has got gout. <laughs> Hold on, Jeff. You, you can't just just kind of you know gen- gently brush this under the table. We've we've not even got just a first eleven out. We've got the best part of twenty players on the injury table at the moment. Um, I mean, you know, we'll we'll come to talking about the United match in a minute. But I mean, we we've had bad bad injury periods. But I, I'm struggling to remember a period that's been consistently as as diabolical as this in terms of senior players dropping in, dropping and being out for a significant period of time. It, I'm kind of curious what other people think in terms of the cause. You know, is, is it just you know players that have been pushed too hard too long or is it, is there something in the background that we're missing? Well, they sacked the entire fitness coach staff, didn't they? Because they're having too many injuries. And apparently they were doing quite a good job compared to this season. <laughs> Whoever they brought in, obviously, is now <laughs> worse than last season. <laughs> they put, uh, that's why you never hired Dr. Nick Riviera. <laughs> Hey, everybody. I don't. Right, so no, we've, got no, we've got no theories then. We don't. We have no just, I mean, just medical stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I've got I don't know if, if any of us are really boring. qualified. Sorry, Paul. Well, I, I was wondering about um, about the, the ground, the training ground, the surface. And then I was thinking maybe it's the, the new new pitch. Because we've, we've only had it a couple of years. And, um, you know, it's the first team that are going out. And um, you know, my nan will tell you when her hip her hip goes because you know the ground's too hard. It's, it's either get her on too hard. Question opinion. Does she, she like she owls? Try that the pitch. She loves owls. She loves owls. She really loves owls. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I, I thought she maybe well with Evans. The field. <laughs> we like turn now to our fitness expert, Paul's nan. <laughs> So, Doreen, uh, how do you think uh, the uh, fitness crisis she, is going to be Wednesday today? Oh, my hip hurts. Paddy, she's called Rose. Don't insult her. <laughs> Sorry, Rose. Uh, she's she a big listener. She's a big fan. Well, not she after is. that she's segment. Actually, she's, actually a <laughs> she's a Sunderland. She's from Sunderland, bless her. What? Let's get her on the yeah. show. We'll have that for the uh, Sunderland preview, which is coming up fairly soon, I think, actually. But for now, we'll move on to Matt Penny's new contract. Uh, well, he doesn't seem to make the bench for the cup games. Uh, he is probably the most highly regarded member of the youth team right now, and it's good to see him continue his career here and you know potentially get some professional first-team opportunities, uh, if not this year, in the near future. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I doubt that many of us have seen him play many times over. Um, we just I, see I've his like worldies on YouTube when he's. I was going to say more more highlights. Although I think that was Sean Clare actually, the one that was going around this week, which uh, was looking pretty class. His uh, his free kick skills, um, <laughs> as one uh, idle Twitter user pointed out. Let's have a bit more of that and a little bit less of uh, Ross Wallace putting it in row Z. 
Um, but that's a little bit unfair, as we know. Uh, no, Matt Penny, I think, is you know is consistently uh, considered to be one of the the standout players in the under twenty three squad. And you know, I, th- I think this is where we kind of bring it back to the positivity around the appointment of um, of Mister Luhuke, right? Which is that he, you know, apparently is an advocate of bringing through young players, integrating them into the the first team squad, and then you know, giving them their heads when there's an opportunity, uh, which didn't seem to be part of Carlos's philosophy. You know, I think you know if, if we were to step back and, and make a critique of his uh, his tenure at Hillsborough, you know, how many really young players did he blood into the Wednesday squad? Um, and I think you'd be struggling to, to name uh, very many, if if any at all. So you know, hopefully uh, Matt Penny's going to get a chance. And it also blows a little bit out of the water. You know, some of the controversy that's been floating around about his uh, advisors as well, Doyen. So. Um, you know, I think uh, they, the finger's been pointed towards them in lots of uh, things Wednesday related recently and, and related to George Hurst. Well, it seems we can deal with them um, and it seems we can uh, get contracts for promising young players. So, um, you know, that's, that's got to be a good thing. Um, I'd just like to see him on a pitch, preferably against Carlisle in a replay in about uh, four or five days' time. And if you haven't got, I think we all got excited, didn't we? We all got a bit excited about uh, Stobbs coming back as well from Vale, didn't we? And I think there was a little ripple of excitement where this idea of Wednesday turn into the youth was going to, you know, going to be something we were going to see. And then obviously the inevitable kind of questions around Hurst started to uh, kind of, uh, you know, rear up again. But um, it doesn't look like that's the case. But um, I'm just curious, you know, what's going to happen with Stobbs and Claire now? I mean, it can't be any worse than under <laughs> Bullen and Carlos because, I mean, I thought I was so angry at the lineup on against Carlisle, first of all. I should have mentioned this earlier on, but as I said last week, it was a perfect opportunity to blood some young people in. I know some of them are cup tied because they played at other clubs, um, but a few of the people, like Penny, wasn't cup tied. Uh, a few people went too. It just, it just beggars belief why they don't try and bring some of these young kids in for these small FA Cup games when everyone else is out of form. Or injured, um, yeah, that really pissed me off. Hopefully on Tuesday we might see a few uh, few new faces come through. I mean, are we sure that Matt Penny's worse than Dave Jones at this point? I think Paul's nan's better than David Jones. <laughs> she is. Well, she's got a hip injury at the moment, so she's out as well. <laughs> Fucking hell! And if you haven't gotten enough FaceTime with the chairman recently between his various steering committee appearances and his 16-part Q&A on the website. They're having another fans forum this Thursday, James. Uh, indeed they are. Uh, cunningly, uh, in, in a stroke of PR genius, schedule the day before we play um, They Who Shall Not Be Named. So, um, you know, blunting, ironically, the uh, the fury of the fan base by getting them before they actually know the result of that game. Um yeah, I mean, you can't fault this uh, this chairman for uh, for opening up to the fan base because uh, no sooner has he changed the manager, um, appointed a CEO, um, gone through sequential kit debacles, and he's uh, he's keen to get back out in front of the uh, the raging mob uh, over a pie and piece supper at Hillsborough, um, which has been scheduled very quickly on the on Thursday evening. Um, I'm sure that uh, the uh, the usual array of folks will uh, will turn out for it, and it will be a a fascinating series of conversations, mostly around the, um, the sort of the the operational detail of uh, of match days at Hillsborough, and you know we we've got to make sure that this is kind of understood. It's, it's different to the the steering group structure, whereby you know there's uh, an array of the leadership team there, and it's a bit more of a structured environment, 
or hopefully will be a bit more restricted environment. Um, this is genuinely a free for all. You know, any fans welcome to turn up, um, and uh, and any question is uh, is on the menu. So um, it could uh, it could go anywhere. Um, submit your questions now to anybody you know in the Sheffield area. Turn up uh, on Thursday evening this week as we record. Well, now it is time to name that which shall not be named, James. It is Derby Week, and it is the Pigs Preview. Well, I'm, I, I've been, I've been dwelling on this. This, this has been at the back of my mind for several weeks since we started doing these uh, these previews of the the towns uh, to whom we'll be playing. Because um, it's, it's kind of occurred to me that we've uh, we've we've gone hard. We've gone hard on a lot of places in England. Uh, for for good reason, uh, trying to our America's listeners as to the the ills of many of the uh, the sort of deprived and the downtrodden and the not too exciting um, across the swathe of Great Britain. Well, this Friday, um, Wednesday, travel all of about three point five miles across the the fair city of Sheffield, which means that we've got to talk about Sheffield, um, the city of my birth, uh, the city of several of our births. Um, so it's sort of bittersweet. This I've got to try and uh, I've got to try and profile in in consistent form um, some of the elements of of what we're about to witness. Uh, but I can't do it in in a traditional way. I've I've got to start this with a little bit of a, a bit of a sort of a heartfelt ode uh, to to the most beautiful city on earth, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you can take your uh, your beautiful uh, kind of uh, Greek history or your um, your kind of I don't know. Uh, your Caribbean ideals, or your um, your mountaintop uh, villages in uh, in the Alps, or uh, or anywhere else on Earth. But you give me the seven hills of Sheffield in Yorkshire on a uh, on a grainy wet Wednesday, and uh, and I'll tell you that it's beautiful. Um, so it's one of the most uh, most sort of vibrant and um, and determined cities I've I've ever known, uh, and set of people I've ever known, um, and. Uh, one of the uh, one of the funniest and, and most culturally productive places you could ever ever choose to visit. Um, so, if we're going to teach anybody anything on this podcast, it's that if you're going to make a pilgrimage somewhere in the Earth during your lifetime, you should go to Sheffield. Um, and here's just a few reasons why. Um, you know, Sheffield is the um, basically the the birthplace of of steel. Um, unsurprisingly, you may uh, you may have associated that with the steel city, um, but it's reinvented itself. You know, the place that literally was forged from um, the coming together of water and uh, and gritstone and uh, and raw materials as a place where you could start to uh, to put all those things in a crucible and and create steel for the industrial revolution and uh, and a city grew out of it is now making uh, super 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 specialized steel and uh, and super carbons for sports cars for McLaren and uh, and aero engines for Boeing. It's um, it's readapted itself. It's the place that kind of in the 1970s was a, a sort of smoke-filled theatre where a, a couple of podgy guys in waistcoats were playing a game of snooker. Uh, it's now the uh, the kind of the heartbed of um, of British sport in terms of the uh, the uh, UK sporting academies and um, and the facilities in the Don Valley where where many of Brit- the British Olympic squad train. Um, it's a it's a town renowned for sort of grubby uh, pints of bitter and uh, and stones and wards and that kind of 
horrible brown warm ale that's now the the heartbeat of the craft beer revolution in uh, in the uk uh, with more micro pubs and microbreweries than i could get around in four weeks over uh, over the christmas holiday um and by the way if you uh, if you want to just hear a snippet of that give our friends at the uh, the sheffield hopcast a listen because the, uh, the the craft beer scene in sheffield is is as good as anything on the uh, the east coast of the us where we are right now um it's uh, it's a town where a religion is built around a uh, a brown sauce in a bottle, our holy water of Henderson's. Um, and I could go on. Um, you know, I haven't even talked about the Peak District and the uh, the vistas of Stanage Edge. Um, you know, it's not Bronte country in uh, in terms of physical location, but it's where anybody will go to film a Bronte uh, a Bronte sequence. It's uh, it's magnificent. Um, Chatsworth Park just over the uh, over the hills, etc. And, uh, and if I was to try and list every musician that came out of Sheffield, um, I'd be here all night. Um, I obviously got to give an honourable mention to our, uh, our friends, Reverend and Makers, uh, who obviously been fantastic in the formation of this podcast. But we can go back to Joe Cocker uh, or, uh, or the Arctic Monkeys, who are, who are well known. Def Leppard, Richard Hawley, The All-Seeing Eye, Cabaret Voltaire, Paul Carrick, Pulp, Jarvis Cocker. Um, you know, uh, we could go on. The Long Pigs, Human League, Heaven 17. Um Sheffield is uh, is is pretty much wonderful in all aspects but one, which is a small postcode. It's the blight on the beauty of Sheffield. Um, a postcode by the uh, by the terminology of S two. Um, people who live in this postcode who, who support a, a downtrodden soccer team of uh, of no particular repute will tell you it's a, a, an area known as beautiful downtown Bramall Lane. Well, let me tell you that sat in New York City, pretty much the only city on earth that really justifies the tag downtown. Um, no one ever f- refers to uh, downtown as beautiful downtown this or beautiful downtown that. It's a it's a term of direction. That's all it is. There's nothing beautiful about downtown Sheffield because there's no such thing as downtown Sheffield. Sheffield has town. The S2 postcode's on the edge of town. Unfortunately, it's not the most... Uh, inspiring part of Sheffield because there's not much there. Um, it's sort of a transition zone as you're getting out of the city centre and you're heading out into the hills. There's a few warehouses here and there, maybe a few student flats. It's not, not necessarily un, uh, unappealing, but there's really nothing else going on. But there's a football stadium. There's only a football stadium there because there used to be a cricket ground there, which is uh, a cricket ground that the Wednesday Cricket Club used to play at until they, uh, they formed a football team and, and thought that maybe they ought to go and build their own digs, a dedicated football stadium. But uh, them moving out meant, meant that the old tenants needed to find somebody to, to hang around. And so they formed a football team um, to represent the United Cricket Clubs of, uh, of Sheffield. Uh, that football team became Sheffield United. They continued to play at a three-sided cricket ground until uh, well into the 1970s, I think, um, until that someone thought they'd box in the Shoreham Street side and, uh, and form a, uh, a football club that we, uh, we have to play this Friday. Um, I'm not even going to name them any further because really they're, they're of no consequence in the greater scheme of things. They're smaller, they're definitely not better, um, and there's, uh, there's nothing to, uh, to distinguish them in terms of achievements. Um, they occasionally get the upper hand on us and they, uh, they crow about it. Um, unfortunately, they haven't got very good manners, so when they crow, it's not very pleasant. Um, but over time, over the course of history, uh, we're going to find a way to sort of rub out that sort of ink mark on the... Uh, on the beauty that is Sheffield, and uh, and Friday hopefully is uh, is another chapter in that history. And if it isn't, don't despair because we'll uh, we'll find our way uh, way back to prominence very soon. So that's uh, that's pretty much what I was going to say for today. Um, but I'll let others weigh in because I'm sure you've got your own views. That's beautiful, uh, mate. That's beautiful. There is a thing uh, you did miss one thing, James. Is there was briefly 
one thing of note in downtown Sheffield, and that was a lovely Carlos Tevez billboard. It wasn't up very long, as I recall. <laughs> but it did, it did brighten guy. up the place. It brought the whole room together. This guy's kept it there forever, but I think it would have uh, been destroyed within minutes. They're a very fractious bunch, those that live in that postcode. They, uh, they, they literally have the inability to, uh, to take a joke, um, which is exactly what Sky TV uh, levied at them when they put that billboard up. I mean, all they were pointing out, of course, was that you know, Mr. Tevez had, uh, had proven quite a success at West Ham United. I'm, I'm not sure that there was uh, much to disagree with about that. It was a, it was a notable uh, Premier League storyline. I think it's was sort of the tenor of the various billboards that went up all around England. Just you know, it could have been anything. It just did. You know. Did any of you try the uh, the thing with the Alexa? <clears throat> Excuse me, the thing with the Alexa, where if you you ask her who are the pigs, she she goes on a spout about the the ones from S two. <laughs> no, that real even in America. Yeah, it worked. I, I, saw, I saw it on, on Facebook, and so I rolled over and decided to give it a try. And sure enough, it, it actually, that is the case. I could, <laughs> I could bring it in here, but uh, it would take me a minute. She, she actually actually mentions them. It's brilliant. Try it out, kids. So that is the city. This is the game. Obviously, Wednesday lost the home fixture. Are we feeling better about the away fixture, Paul? No, not really. I think <laughs> yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's just, you know, let's just leave it there. I just, you know, it's just so frustrating, isn't it? It's like this, I just kind of feel, immediately feel sorry for, you know, for just coming in. It's just not the game you want now. Just not now, you know. I saw a little a message popped up on my phone about the uh, the Middlesbrough game being postponed. I thought, fucking hell, can we just can we postpone this one? Just push it a month or two. Just not ready for it. I really want this so badly, but I don't know. I just where we're at right now with injuries and a new kind of uh, you know coaching team coming in. I I just don't know what we can expect. I'm just I just I'm nervous. Well, I think that that their form has definitely has definitely dropped since you know, we we played on I think it was September 23rd. So um, I'm hoping that that I, it's wishful thinking, I suppose. <laughs> I, I don't, I, not even going to finish know, that. I sentence. guess I'm not as optimistic as I, I tried to sound right there. <laughs> you are almost positive. Well, it's it's going to be fine. You can do it. It's going to be fine. We've got Luvens, Luvens, Jones, Butterfield. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. Look, I mean, isn't there a school of thought, and call me the optimist in the group and then shoot me down, which is that in a few days, which is all we have here, that Luke might be able to instill a little bit more defensive discipline into this team. And... That might not be enough for us to get a result, and by result, I think a good result would be a draw. Um, but we might get an honourable performance out of the team, maybe not one that, that mirrors what we saw against Burton in the last league game. Um, and and that's, that's maybe something to hope for. You know, if you can get a back four that can actually withstand you know, a player running at them on pace. Like Leon um, Clark. Not... <laughs> Maybe maybe back five or six that can kind of you know collectively form a human net and wrestle him to the ground and throw him into an advertising hall. Um, 
you know, I, 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 that's my hope for Friday. It, it's that we get a bit more grit and a little bit of fight and a little bit of spirit out of the eleven players that go out there, and that you know that maybe they don't they don't conquer the, uh, the 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 mountain of the game itself, but they they demonstrate that they've got the potential to get there in in due course. And you know this United team, you know they've 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 had a magnificent season. You know, let's take all the humour outside of it and, and give credit where credit's due. You know, if 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 our new manager can do what Chris Wilder has done over the last eighteen months at Hill, uh, to, uh, <laughs> if only done at Hillsborough um, at Bramall Lane, then um, you know they will will be crowing the way that they uh, they have been uh, of late. But um, you know they they faltered a bit. The last six eight games haven't haven't been anything stellar. Um, so. You know, maybe there's a few weak spots he can identify as well. You know, we don't know tactical analysis is, but um, perhaps there's something to to probe a bit of an underbelly on the beast, uh, as it were. Do we have any other business? Well, we alluded to it earlier. Paul wasn't only drinking to celebrate the Derby week, because Paul got engaged at the weekend. Yay! Congrats, mate. Cheers. Thanks a lot. I did. I did. I got engaged. I got engaged to my girlfriend, Jenny. I was in Chicago and uh, uh, popped the question on the flight between New York and, and Chicago. So, uh, fortunately, she said yes and, and didn't that jump out really of the <laughs> yeah, I trapped her for two hours so she couldn't escape. It took me an hour and 50 minutes to convince her. But she <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so it was good. And then I had a nice party over there for uh, her grandma. It was a grandma's uh, birthday. We talked about hip replacements and I saw it. <laughs> I saw a bag with uh, a glittery bag with a picture of an owl on it, and someone said, "Don't go near that bag; it's shit in glitter." And it had a picture of owl on it, which made me chuckle. So I thought it was a sign: "We'll be shit in glitter come May, boys." And he decided to put that on the social media. Always. <laughs> so this is despite you uh, showing your father-in-law Shepherd Wednesday's game against was it Ipswich? Reading, I think, wasn't it? They were all yeah. bad. It was all of the bad ones. Yeah, it was Reading that one. Yeah, you must really yeah. like you as a person to allow you to marry their daughter. I think he's forgiven me for my uh, <laughs> my aimless football following. <laughs> the, the, un- unbelievably, I'm actually quite an accomplished chap beyond this. <laughs> really, <laughs> it's hard to believe right now, Paul. But um, yeah, we'll take your word for it. <laughs> if you do want to see Paul's photo of the. Uh, Owl Shitting Glitter. You can find it on our Twitter handle, at Owls Americas. You can find Owls Americas at OwlsAmericas.com. You can email the show at OwlsAmericas at gmail.com. As mentioned, our podcast intro and bumpers are by fellow Wednesdayites, Reverend and the Makers. The podcast is on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbeam, probably anywhere else you choose to download podcasts. There's no wrong way to listen to the show. Just do what feels right. Wherever you choose to consume the Owls Americas, we ask that you rate and review the show. It helps more Wednesdayites find our ramblings. Speaking of ramblings, you can leave the show a voicemail on our dazed and mumbled line at 1401-307-1867. International rates do apply, but you can dial it for free using Google Voice. James is on Twitter at Manhattan Owl. James, your scoreline prediction for the Sheffield Derby. I'm going to go for Wednesday to sneak it 1-0. I've no idea why, but why not be optimistic? Bring it. Uh, it'll only make the uh, the aftermath a little bit more bittersweet. It is the hope that kills you. Paul is on Twitter at the Wednesday. Paul, your scoreline prediction for the Steel City Derby? It's going to be a six-five thriller. It's going to be a massive away win for us. Dave Jones with a hat trick. 
Evan is on Twitter at Ohio Owl. Evan, what is your prediction for the scoreline on Friday? 3-1 to the Owls. Patty is on Twitter at Patty A. Jones and at New York Owls. Patty, where are the meetups for the Steel City Derby this weekend? We've got five meetups on Friday, which is fantastic. So uh, the Tampa Owls, our Florida Owls, are back at uh, McDinton's in Soho, Tampa. Uh, You've got New Orleans. uh, They're meeting at Finn McCool's. You have the Portland guys in the Toffee Club. You have the Buenos Aires guys um, who haven't decided yet, but uh, if you go onto our website, they'll let you know. And you have us in New York, uh, a football factory, 2.45 kickoff. We were drinking beforehand to try and numb any pain that may happen. And I'm going for a 3-2 win for Wednesday. I'm on Twitter, at Jeff Paternostro, and we'll see you back here next week after Wednesday wins 2-1 on a stoppage time header from none other than Eddie Newhue.